Good morning, everyone. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could be with us today. Thanks for joining us. Addiction is at an all-time high here in the United States. And yesterday morning at 9, we brought you an in-depth look at substance use disorders, why they're so complicated to treat, and the new treatments that are giving people hope for recovery. That was from NPR's mental health initiative, Call to Mind. Well, today, I'm continuing that conversation. I'm talking with members of a Minnesota peer support group, specifically for nurses struggling with substance use. And we'll also hear from a group that is working to expand access to treatment using telehealth. And I want to hear from you, too. Have you or someone you know struggled with substance use? And if you are in recovery, what has helped you? Have you been to a peer-to-peer support group? What was your experience like? The phone lines are open. I want to hear from you. Call us at 651 627-6000. Two two seven six thousand. Again, the number to call is six five one two two seven six thousand, or you can call eight hundred two four two twenty eight twenty eight. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at Angela Davis NPR. Let's bring in our guests, both in studio this morning. You made it through the snow. Thank you for driving in to downtown St. Paul. We have in the studio with us Carrie Kappel. Carrie is co-chair of the Board of Minnesota Nursing Peer Support Network. She's also the manager of operations and addiction services at Alina Health. Good morning, Carrie. Nice to meet you. Good morning. It's great to be here. Also with us, we have Peyton Pollard. Peyton is a local ICU nurse and a convener for Minnesota Nursing Peer Support Network. Hi, Peyton. How's it going? Hi, Glad to be here. You're in your scrubs. You were wor- at work? All night. All right. Well, yep. thank you for sitting here talking <laughs> with us today. Uh, so let's start with some of these numbers, the statistics on addiction um, in our country. They, they really are striking. During the COVID-19 pandemic, binge drinking increased by 21% and drug overdoses claimed more than 100,000 lives in just a 12-month period. And Carrie, I know that you have worked in substance use treatment for a long time. Mm -hmm. When you hear these numbers, what goes through your mind? What goes through my mind is that um, aside from the Minnesota Nurses Peer Support Network um, is that we need more treatment. We need many more options available. Um, We need harm reduction options available. We need providers that have uh, medicated-assisted treatment um, available options to actually prescribe medications. Um, And we need to embrace and connect people to recovery. Addiction is really a disease of isolation and separation. And often families even separate themselves from their loved ones because of the consequences and the actions of the person in active disease. And in recovery, it really is about connecting people so that they don't feel so isolated. Describe that. Family members, you said they, they disconnect. What does that look and feel like? So it can look and feel like um, a family member saying, um, setting boundaries. I, I, I can't see you because you're you're using or you're drinking. Um, it can be um, you can't see the grandkids. You can't, you know, we're not going to get together. We're not going to invite you to, to family get-togethers um, because of your behaviors when you when you drink and you you're not able to drink or use um, and come to uh, come to function sober, and so families will start to distance themselves as well well as friends um, and employers at some point. And from what you've seen, why do family members do that? Is it it's it in an attempt to actually help to try to get the person to get the help that they need? Yeah, it it, it in many ways we 
sometimes feel that if we distance ourselves, people will, quote unquote, get their act together. Um, and it's not easy. Not no, that easy at it's all. not easy. And by that time, the the disease itself has, um, in active addiction, has really grasped the individual's ability to make choice. Um, I, I like to relate it in my own recovery that when I was in active addiction, uh, my brain said, I need this drug like I need air. And mm-hmm. I will do anything to get it. Because that's the only thing that my body at that point felt was normal and survival mode. Because you needed to work and you needed to function. Yes. yes. Uh, you've been in recovery from substance uh, use disorder since 2009, Carrie. And mm-hmm. so what supports were available to you when you were just starting out with your recovery? So I actually um, did my first go round into recovery in 2001 um, and was sober for more than four or five years. Um but I relapsed um, with alcohol, which was not originally my drug of choice. Opiates was my drug of choice. Um, and it, 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 for those of us with the disease of addiction, um, any mood-altering substance can either become addictive or we can return to the, our drug of choice. Um, and so I um, went back into recovery in 2009 um, and did some really hard work looking at myself and my recovery. Um, and the things that I needed to do to get well. Um, but I didn't have something like Nurses Peer Support Network when I got well and into recovery. Um, I was a nurse. Um, I had been terminated from my place of employment. Um, I now had a um, a license that I didn't know whether I was going to have an ability to practice. Um, I had a lot of consequences. And I found my original supports in the rooms of 12-step recovery. And those folks wrapped their arms around me and said, you know, if you keep coming back and you keep doing what we need to do, one step in front of the other for recovery, it's going to work itself out. Um, But I searched those rooms for somebody that looked like me that was a nurse or another healthcare provider. And they when I did find them, shared how difficult their own journeys were. And that's really what, in 2014, a room of nurses and Marie Manthe, who was originally our co-founder of of Nurses Peer Support Network, found is these stories of nurses over and over again that didn't have the ability or connection to share the shame, the acceptance of figuring out, I have this disease and how do I recover? I'm I'm curious about how you function at work. You're consuming alcohol, you're consuming opiates, but you're still functioning and working. Can you describe what you were like at work? So when I was act, in active use, um, it was a struggle. Um, and and many of my colleagues didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, my family noticed differences in my behavior but they didn't know what was going on. And this is often the case with many people, right? Yes, absolutely. Right. We notice changes, uh, but we sometimes it's the elephant in the room and nobody wants to say anything, mm-hmm. you know, or they don't really know what's going on. And, and something's off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're afraid to make questions. And the best time to approach somebody that has a substance use disorder or you're concerned is to really um, look for a time that they're, they're doing well or they're sober and, and express your concerns. 
mm-hmm. versus when they're under the influence. Mm-hmm. Peyton, um, let's get back to those numbers again. Binge drinking increased by 21%. Drug overdoses claimed more than 100,000 lives in just a 12-month period. Um, addiction in the country, it's, it's, it's huge. Um, as you listen to Carrie tell her story, you have your own story. Mm-hmm. Um, well, first of all, do you think about just this, this spike we're seeing, that, particularly during the pandemic? Um, I, I, looking back the past few years, you know, the pandemic, it's just been kind of astronomical. I mean, both in my own recovery circles and, you know, the nurses. And, um, so one of our, one of the organizations that our organization works a lot with is the nurse, uh, health professional services program. So every healthcare provider, um, in the, in the state, you know, if they struggle with substance abuse issues, they have to, you know, um, work with them. And so we got some statistics about, you know, just this astronomical increase of relapse and um, just it and, you know, from my friends and uh, in my circles in recovery, it was just, um, it was really sad to see so many people. I mean, we lost tons of people. I mean, there's always, um, you know, when you get sober, I don't think anyone really tells you about, you know, you're going to see, there are a lot of friends that, you know, go back out or, um, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of sad, sad stories out there. Right. Right. And so what was your situation and how were you able to um, to, to, to be in recovery now? Mm-hmm. What turned things around? Um, you know, I grew up deep south in Louisiana. Oh, that is um, deep. Yeah. You yeah. got me beat Way deep. Right. south. Okay. <laughs> um, so um, I just, you know, alcohol was my way to cope with the life that, you know, um, I did. I didn't have any other coping skills, and that's just what. And then I added this profession. That's um, you know, I'm a nurse, so it's stressful. You know, it's stressful. It's exhausting. Um, you know, it's emotionally draining. And I don't think you know, I can't convey you know via speech how emotional our our profession is. And yeah. so I didn't know how to deal with that. So I turned to the thing that I you know my my coping skill. What and, you knew and what you'd always mm-hmm. been around. Yeah, right? it's like that old friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually, you know, it started out like it was a, it was manageable. And then eventually, you know, for a lot of people too, um, it becomes unmanageable. And at that point I knew, you know, with the help, tremendous help actually from, you know, my family, um, you know, a bunch of wonderful nurses, um, in recovery surrounding me that, you know, it wasn't manageable. I needed to. Do you remember the uncomfortable conversations when people confronted you? What stands out to you? Um, so it was really my family that was, you know. I, those are the conversations that I had because I got sober before I was actually, you know, um, it was during nursing school, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, but those were some of the hardest, you know, conversations because it's hard to look at yourself like this. Like it's hard to realize that I don't have a solution for, you know, this problem because, you know, we see it at work. We see, you know, alcoholics and addicts at work all the time. And we know how to, you know, the exact prescriptions, you know, everything that you do to treat that, but we, you know, can't solve our own problems, you know, and I want to talk about just, um, just having a peer, someone in the same field, but specifically the two of you work very closely with the Minnesota Nursing Peer Support Network. Peyton, tell me what happens. What is this group and what happens in these conversations? So it's, it's a group of um, nurses that get together with, you know, a peer, I'm, you know, I'm a convener, so I'm kind of like the just like a loose air traffic controller, um, you know, just someone there to make sure things, you know, kind of stay, um, you know, somewhat f- focused onto the topic of recovery um, and day to day struggles and whatever that might whatever that might bring up for people. But, you know, really, I, I keep my meetings 
pretty chill. Um, and I just really want people, um, I try and create a very safe space um, so people can bring up whatever they need to. Um, because when you add, you know, you know, addiction and recovery and all that, and you add this other profession, like I was talking about, you know, it brings up a lot because there are stressors in the workday for nurses that, you know, other people in different professions might Most not know. Most professions would never deal with, mm-hmm. right? Um, so again, so a group specifically for nurses instead of a more general group like um, AA, for example. So what, what's the value of that? Describe that. Um, I think it gives, um, you know, nurses, it's the biggest sorority I've ever joined. So, <laughs> um, you know, it gives this camaraderie ship that mm-hmm. nurses kind of thrive on, I think. Yes. Um, and Even in, during the work day, you work as a team mm-hmm. and, and rely on yeah. each other. So yeah. it makes that makes sense. So we kind of have this team of nurses that are always there for each other, you know, because there there are good days in recovery, there are bad days in recovery, and that's the whole purpose of this, you know, you know, this group of nurses is to you know swoop in when someone's having a bad day, um, and just be that you know core support that people need to really maintain healthy recovery. If you're just joining us, we're talking about substance use disorder, addiction, and recovery. Have you or someone you know struggled with substance use? If you are in recovery, I want to hear from you. What helped you? Have you been to a peer-to-peer support group? What was your experience? The phone lines are open. You can call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. As I talk with two guests, uh, they're both with the Minnesota Nursing Peer Support Network. We want to hear your stories. You can also tweet me at Angela Davis NPR. Uh, let's take some phone calls right now. In Grand Rapids, we have John on the phone. Good morning, John. Thank you for calling in. Hey, Hi. Good what, morning. Thank sh- you for having me and yeah. thank you for this topic. I'll tell you, um, I wish I could be in the studio with you guys because I got too much. I got too much to say. You know, um, on too many parts of the topic. But here's the deal. I'll just try to make this concise and get right to it. So um, I've been on on all different sides of the of the addiction and uh, substance abuse and use thing um, in my own life and then professionally too. Um, so I have throughout. I'm 54 years old. Throughout my life, I've been dealt with pretty serious addictions to um, opiates and to cocaine and um, and to alcohol quite a bit. Um, but I've had, you know, long periods of sobriety and I've functioned also, function as an active user. They were talking about, you know, working and stuff. I worked as a minister for years and um, mm-hmm. was doing drugs, alcohol, you know, on and off throughout that. And there were some times where it got pretty bad and I continued to do it. Um, I tried a bunch of different ways to get sober with some success and then it wouldn't work. And then some more success. I had a good stretch of about eight years when I finally got, went to AA and like got involved, started, you know, not just going to the meetings and not going cause I had to, but it, somebody once said to me, how long do you have to go? And they said, you have to go until you want to go. And that was the thing. I, I kept going until, you know, until, and started, you know, going out for coffee with people and getting to know people and getting involved in that whole community thing. Well, then, in 2020, I lost my job and my mother died and mm-hmm. I'd been in a relationship for like 13 years and that fell apart. And I, these are not excuses, but I went it's off. too much. It was a lot. And I re- yeah, it was. So I went off the rails and I relapsed really hard and I really was trying to, trying to commit suicide. I thought, figured I would overdose and I didn't. And so anyways, that's a different topic, but, um, and that's the only time I've been suicidal. But the point is, is that I finally, um, landed in jail. And, and and I'm not from Grand Rapids. I'm from the Twin Cities, but I was up here working for a guy 
and I got out of jail um, after a month, and um, and I started going to AA up here, and I decided that you know in the past that's where I'd had success, so I was going to really get into this program, and so I did, and I started to go to a lot of meetings, and I started to, and I didn't know anyone here, so I started to meet people through AA, and you know pretty mm-hmm. soon we're hanging out, and you know first I give you rides, and ask you if you want to come over and watch football, and then. You know, and really, it's been it's been beautiful to watch the magic happens, like in the in my life and in other people's lives. And I'll just say one more quick thing, if I can, is like it's just like this. When you go to AA, it's one of those things that, um, you know, it's sometimes I think you know I I I think oh it's too bad that I have to do this, and other times I think it's really awesome that I get to do this because I get to see something that a lot of people don't get to see. You get people from all different walks of life, different income brackets, different colors, different religious and political beliefs that m- maybe wouldn't hang out with each other. But there's they some, share this common ailment. The they power together. of the conversation yeah, of talking about it. Right. Wonderful. And, and they John, come together and they... I have a quick know, question. I'm, I'm taking too much time. No, I have a, a quick follow-up yeah. question. You mentioned that you were working as a minister. Um, yes. So tell me about conversations you were having with yourself. Was there guilt and shame as you, as you were, oh, yes. were handling this or, or not handling yeah, absolutely. it? absolutely. Absolutely. Because, um, you know, yeah, there was a lot of guilt and shame because, you know, I mean, you know, you, first of all, there was a few things. Number one, I felt like I wasn't being the best me that I could be. So, like, I wasn't really taking the gifts that God had given me and using them properly. You understand, you know, mm-hmm. that I could have done much better in my job. But still, you know, people would give you, um, you know, they would tell you just, you know, how wonderful you were and you felt like a fraud, you know, and um and then I knew, and plus, you know, I had a family, you know, that I that I lost over the deal at one point, and um, you and, know, I mean, and John, you're, in general, you're in there's re- a lot of guilt, a lot of shame, and then you, you try, you're like, this time I'm going to do it, this time I'm done. And John, yeah, and, right and now you you're in recovery, right, John? You yeah. said you're in recovery right now. Okay, I want to give our two casts yes. an oh, oppor- yeah. opportunity to share. John, thank you for calling us, John, in Grand Rapids, sh- sharing his story in and out of uh, recovery uh, through COVID and and um, coming back from a, a relapse. Um, what do you hear on his story, Carrie? I hear a gentleman that has um, been been working at recovery for a really long time, and he's had bouts of success mm-hmm. and challenges, and that's life, right? Um, but with the disease of addiction, as I was talking earlier, the disease is about isolation, and what I heard when he was in recovery, it was about connection, mm-hmm. and. You know, with our organization, the nonprofit, um, NPSN, we like to call it for short, um, but it, it really is about connection. Nursing Peer Support Network. Yeah. Um, connection and talking, those conversations. Yeah. Because what is, what's so powerful about the conversations? Is it knowing like you're not the only one or it's, it's empowering, right? Right. It's knowing that you're not the only one, um, that uh, I'm not the only one going through this. Um, there's been other people that have walked my path. Um, sometimes nurses have some legal consequences. Sometimes anyone in recovery has legal consequences. Right. And being able to navigate those with people that have walked that path before and can support you as you're walking that journey is significant. We also have a fair amount of stigma. Um, there is a, a stigma um, for healthcare professionals and nurses in, in general. Tell me about that. The stigma. The stigma is I should have known better. Because um, you're educated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm educated. I'm a nurse. I have some medical background, right? right? I should somewhat be protected. Do better. 
Yeah. In actuality, um, when I speak to nursing um, students um, in Minnesota uh, often, um, I find that they're really challenged with understanding that they're just as vulnerable to the disease of addiction as Joe walking down the street. Right. Uh, Peyton, what did you hear in John's story there in Grand Rapids? Um, I definitely heard that resilience, um, you know, and as someone who has struggled with relapse, you know, that that's part of my story. I had a really bad relapse, you know, um, before I, you know, got sober again. Um, you know, re- just like life and so many other things, uh, recovery is not always this linear, perfect journey. Um, sometimes there's some potholes and sometimes there's a why on the road that you didn't, you know, anticipate. Um, but I just, you know, I heard that resilience and that, um, just that longing for fellowship and, um, connection. Cause that's exactly what, that's exactly what I craved my whole life really. And I didn't find that until I really, you know, found all these people in recovery. What are the conversations about substance use uh, among nurses? Can you, to some degree, describe what, what those, those meetings are like? Um, do they start you know, if you were able to take me into a room, like what would be kind of the, the mood and tone of it? Or does it kind of go highs and lows? Um, I think it's always helpful to start out with, um, you know, we all kind of stereotypically, you know, we all introduce ourselves, um, you know, and then I usually I, I'm a big fan of um, um, there's some really good readings. Uh, Hazelden mm-hmm. actually has some phenomenal um readings on their website. And so mm-hmm. I, I usually the one that I choose is, you know, about codependency and it has a lot of great, you know, insight and wisdom. Um, so I'll read, you know, reading and then we'll go into, you know, sharing stories and people are very different. I mean, there's so many different types of people that, you know, come into these meetings. Some people, you know, um, have, you know, diverted drugs at work. Some people have um, self-reported that they have, you know, a drinking problem, um, and are just trying to, you know, repair their lives. So it's a very a really wide variety of people, but we're all with the same goal of just, um, you know, voicing those, um, you know, deep inner thoughts that you know they feel like they can't share, that they're too ashamed to share, and just giving them a giving that a voice so that you know it gives it less power over them. You know, and I've read that within the nursing industry, one of the the challenges is that there's again this access to medication because you're working in a setting where there may be like you know, cabinets or like leftover drugs or, and that is sort of the beginning of a problem for some folks mm-hmm. because the, it's just, it's there. It's within reach. Have you found that to be true? Yeah. Access is one of the, um, you kind of the, the it's cornerstones. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's take another phone call as we talk about uh, substance use uh, disorders and recovery. Uh, we have uh, two guests in studio and hearing your stories as well. Call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. Uh, are you in recovery? What has helped? What uh, what has been difficult? Tell us what is happening with you. Uh, in Eveleth, Anthony's on the phone. Hi, Anthony. Good morning to you and thank you for calling. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Um, first time caller, but I just wanted to put a, a couple thoughts in for recovery and in nursing in particular. Um, the aspect of big pharma and anti-anxiety meds such as Xanax or Klonopin and benzodiazepines and that affecting drinking and relapse rates Um and also the new treatment modalities of using medicated assistant treatment. I just was curious about 
your callers and your views on that. Okay, tell me more uh, about um, medical assistant treatment. What what is um, what is that? Using an abuse for alcoholism and different medications, mm-hmm. where they can just stabilize people and get them sober enough so they can work on their mental health issues or other issues surrounding their addiction. Um, for opioid use disorder, I know in Duluth they do Suboxone and Methadone. Mm-hmm. But it seems like just a quick fix to get people out the door and not treating the mental health aspect and the emotional and family aspect of it. And Anthony, are you in recovery right now? Yeah, I've been in recovery for over five years and Wonderful. Okay. sober for over five now. But um, All right, thank I've you. had people in my life that I've seen overdose and pass mm-hmm. away from opioid use disorder, and it's just really sad. I'm so sorry. Thank you, um, Anthony uh, and Eveleth. Carrie, what do we need to know about medical assistance, uh, medications uh, as a treatment for um, substance use disorders? So medication-assisted treatment, or MAT for short, um, is is medications that assist with uh, recovery. So those can be medications um, like Anthony talked about with a campersate or um, an abuse, per se, um, that helps people reduce the craving. Mm-hmm. for alcohol. Um, does it work? It, it does work for some. Um, the naltrexone, um, which can actually be used for both opioids and um, alcohol, um, naltrexone uh, can, is a medication that can be given to reduce um, cravings again for alcohol. And so those are in themselves won't um, eliminate the disease piece, but can help make it easier for someone trying to abstain from use and and to get into recovery. So you have to do multiple things. Absolutely. Success, typically Absolutely. success comes from multiple uh, methods right. of seeking treatment. Yeah. Uh, Peyton, what can you uh, tell us about uh, medical assistance as part of a treatment? Um, I think that a multimodal approach, you know, that's how we do things in basically any any phase of healthcare. Any diagnosis, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think that if you can kind of... Um, kind of get a hold and uh, control the neurochemical aspects of, you know, addiction in the early stages, like, um, which those drugs, you know, tend to help with, you know, with the, um, you know, so that that can take a little bit of the burden off of like someone that just got sober, so they don't have to, you know, it's not such a steep uphill climb the first, you know, the first stint of recovery, because that's kind of the hardest and having having Every every tool in your toolbox, um, sometimes that's what keeps people sober and, you know, gets them sober and keeps them sober for years and years. And again, just if you could just speak to how valuable it is when people talk about it. Mm-hmm. But it can be very hard to make that initial first step. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? But you've seen that in your peer support groups. Once people start talking, then it becomes easier to share. Oh, it's this like incredible thing to see. Um, it's like watching a butterfly hatch. Um, <laughs> but seriously, because it's you, you start out as this, you know, myself uh, included, you know, you start as this feeble, ashamed. I was so ashamed. I didn't want anyone to know who I was or, you know, I didn't want to, you know, be seen anywhere. Um, but then once you just the vulnerability, it just like it catches like fire. And then once that happens, you just like sink into this recovery. And it just it's this life changing, like, um, paradigm shift, you know, and I, I've, you know, seeing that in other people is this incredible gift. 
Um, and so getting to see that in nurses specifically, it's like, it's incredible to watch these, these people grow. Mm-hmm. and change. I want to read a written comment before we take a news break, um, but reminding you, we're still taking your phone calls. Have you or someone you know struggled with substance use? If you're in recovery, what helped you? Have you been to peer-to-peer uh, support groups? What was your experience? You can call us at 651-227-6000 or call 800-242-2828. Tweet me at Angela Davis NPR. And I have a written comment here I want to read before we go to news. Lauren and Fargo wrote this. She says, I am six months alcohol free today, Angela. I was drinking every day, only one drink per day, but I'd feel awful when I woke up the next morning. I want people to know about a subreddit group called Stop Drinking. It was the wind under my cell and really helped me. The only rule is for people to use I statements. Now, before we bring in a, a third guest, uh, Carrie, you wanted to talk more about medication-assisted treatment. What do you want people to know about what's available? I also wanted people to know that that um, Anthony, our last caller, talked mm-hmm. a little bit about Suboxone. That is a medication that, that is widely used, um, not enough but can be widely used. Mm-hmm. Um, we have providers at Alina, um, the addiction providers that can provide that medication. Primary care providers can be certified to provide that medication. And it, it helps to um, eliminate the need for seeking drugs, um, opiates specifically, um, and can actually block receptors so that if individuals attempt to use, they don't get that same high. And so it helps them in recovery. And actually what we're finding is that folks often need to be on that medication long term. Um, Mm -hmm. It isn't a quick fix and they come off those medications. They may need to be on it for a number of years or or for a longer period of time than thought. Have you personally seen that drug uh, be effective? Very much so. Very much so. In my practice at Alina. And Peyton, you're nodding? Mm -hmm. I've had friends that have, um, you know, been on Suboxone for a long time. Um, And it helps. Mm Mm-hmm. But still requires additional resources. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think that it's one of those things. It's you know, it's part of the toolkit. You mm-hmm. know, you have to have a multimodal approach, um, like anything else. All right. Well, let's bring in our next guest. We have uh, on the line with us Chris McCullough. Chris is the CEO of Partners Behavioral Healthcare, which focuses on treatments for substance use disorders and mental health. They're located in Roseville, but they also have offices in North Minneapolis, as well as Virginia, Minnesota and Hibbing. And they offer services via telehealth. Good morning, Chris. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Angela. Hi. So we've been talking um, about addiction being at an all-time high across the United States. What level of of need are you seeing right now for treatments? How do you describe what's going on? You know, the statistics are that roughly one in 10 people uh, with a substance use disorder are receiving treatment in the U.S. Um, COVID has just just increased what was already a, a significant problem. And so... We're responding to about 10% of the need right now. Um, and, and an underlying issue that I would like to, to maybe bring to the table is the statistic is that we're, we're reaching 10%, but our staffing capabilities are stressed to the limit. Um, currently, there, there just are not enough licensed clinical professionals. So, um, so to, let me go get, ahead. I just want to make sure I understand these numbers correct. You say one in 10 with a substance use disorder is actually receiving treatment. Correct. And Mm -hmm. even with that, there still aren't enough people to help with that? That's correct. Yep. Yep. 
so to me that that is the issue in the next 10 years that we need to face that we need to be um allocating resources for that we need to be promoting is is getting you know doing everything we can to to um fund and to to bring professionals into this field and so what are some of the barriers uh to accessing treatment uh what what is getting in the way of people who want help to get it you know yeah thanks great question um Historically, there have been significant barriers uh, to to a- accessing effective services. Um, some of these might examples might be um, single parents or caregivers with children, um, persons with disabilities, even something like the cost of commuting to treatment, uh, public mm-hmm. transport, gas. Look at the weather right now. You know mm-hmm. how. For, luckily, I'm in Arizona right now at a family reunion, so I, I'm missing out. But uh, mental health barriers. You know, if you have generalized anxiety, the idea of sitting in a group of 16 with, you know, 15 or 16 people can just be overwhelming. Uh, rural populations, um, mm-hmm. anonymity. You know, a lot of people in smaller towns might have access to treatment in person, um, right. but but they don't want to necessarily go there yet. Yeah, the, um, the whole town is going to know you were there. Yeah, it goes right. correctional or justice involved persons are usually, you know, released back to their county of offense. Uh, those counties are all over the state, often in remote areas with no or few services there. So there, there are many barriers. Now, Chris, I know you want to talk about telehealth. Uh, in 2020, we saw an increase in telehealth appointments using video chats. Uh, how has that affected access to treatment for substance use disorders? It, um, it's a game changer. It, it, it changes absolutely everything. And the short answer would be that all of the barriers that that I just listed are effectively removed with telehealth. Um, what we're at partners, we're a week or so away from reaching anyone in the state as long as there's a cell phone signal. Currently, we send tablets and they have to hook those tablets up to their Wi-Fi. Uh, the next iteration of our program will be tablets that have data plans. So even if somebody doesn't have mm-hmm. Wi-Fi, they could they can mm-hmm. you know join groups, they can get um, virtual care. So that that's what we're doing about it. But the the barriers really almost are dissolved. Um, because of virtual care. So so paint a picture for me, Chris, uh, a telehealth appointment, um, the treatment for substance use using telehealth. Um, how is it different than in person? I mean, what is the experience like for someone? Um, well, it, it's an interesting time right now for us. I, it, we're at this pivotal time and, and it's different for all of the, all of the parties involved. It, it changes everything. And, and those variables we're trying to take into consideration as we build out these virtual programs. Um, an example would be for effective group therapy. It's vital that the, that the therapist kind of positively influence the group to form together. You have to build trust and rapport. Uh, and the skills or the tools it takes to do that are very different in a virtual environment than an in-person setting. Um, so a practical example might be... Um, what we found when we started doing virtual programming, so you get somebody a tablet and they get on, but they don't have multiple monitors. So they can't be going through the assignments in the curriculum and also be, uh, you know, in group, mm-hmm. viewing the screen, seeing what's going on from the counselor. So we discovered early on that we needed to to print our curriculum, to print the homework and the worksheets and and send that out as an additional resource so that they can be on the tablet and doing and doing the worksheets at the same time. There, there's just a lot of little things like that that, 
that don't come up in person, but in a virtual setting, uh, it's it's making us up our game for sure. We, we've got to learn how to use this technology. It sounds like providers are, are figuring out, getting more creative and figuring out what the, you know, some of the barriers are and how to improve these telehealth appointments. And so what's your hope for the future of telehealth and treating substance use disorders? Um, you know, my, my aim is to be accessible to every person in the state of Minnesota who needs or wants behavioral health services. Um, so currently, uh, as already pointed out in the show, it's really, really important to do integrated care. And so we do uh, MAT or medication management, if you will, mental health and the chemical health or what's commonly called treatment. Um, these at, at partners, these services are all integrated, um, meaning that the clinical team deploys appropriate resources depending on the client need. Um, so what does that mean? Virtually. I'm sorry, that's that's technical to me. What does that mean? Uh, it means so if you're if you were a patient or a client and you called us and you were going to do an intake, what we do is we screen. So if mm-hmm. you're coming as as an intake for in our SED program, and we have three different divisions, we immediately screen for mental health and MAT or healthcare services. We call it. Mm-hmm. We, we cannot effectively treat somebody if we don't know what all of the variables are, exactly what's been pointed out on the show this morning. And so we do a screening for mental health. If you have an undiagnosed mental health disorder and you're coming for SUD services, we're going to be, you know, marginally effective if we're not uh, addressing all of those issues. The same thing for medicated assisted therapies. Um, We've got to know what, what is going on and then we'll deploy resources to what those needs are. You know, one person might need Matt and SUD, one might need SUD and mental health, one might need all three. Um, but if we don't, if we don't look at that as a, as a person comprehensively, we, we are not really doing our job. Well, Chris, thank you for making time uh, to be part of our conversation today. That is Chris McCullough, the CEO of Partners Behavioral Healthcare, which has locations throughout Minnesota and offers telehealth appointments, as you heard. Thank you, Chris. Um, thank you. Peyton, what do you think about um, just, you know, telehealth becoming more widely available and, you know, providers getting better at really, you know, serving pe- patients and, and clients? I mean, I think that's the way of the future. I mean, in basically every facet of healthcare. We've had to rely on telehealth the past, you know, starting really back when COVID started. Um, you know, and I know that I, during COVID, I was going to my therapist via on, telehealth, on, via telehealth right. for, you know, until they let me come back into person, you know, and it, it, for a lot of people that, that accessibility is just like vital. I mean, and, you know, reaching beyond this, I mean, it's used even in like ICUs, you know, it's such an important facet. Wow. Um, you can have like a, a doctor um, camera in on a sick patient um, if they're, you know, if they're crashing and they can kind of direct a code or direct, um, you know, advanced care from, from a, you know. Another location. Yeah. So that's uh, important. Carrie, what do you want to say about telehealth as we look at substance use disorders? A couple of things. One, we're using that COVID pushed nurses peer support network to look at virtual options. We weren't using virtual. For your um, meetings. For and, meetings prior mm-hmm. to that. Um, one of our largest meetings is a vir- entirely virtual meeting. It is, it is through a platform called intherooms.com. And we started it originally as a six-month pilot um, to determine whether it was going to be an effective way to reach nurses in outstate Minnesota that we couldn't reach mm-hmm. by in-person meetings. Were they uh, grateful? Not only were they grateful, we have 80 to 100 nurses that attend that meeting every week, and they are from around the world, mm-hmm. Angela, not just Minnesota. So you'll pop into a meeting on on a Tuesday night and – in that meeting, you'll have a nurse from Ely, Minnesota, but you'll have a nurse from England. 
sharing some of the same sentiments. Absolutely. Uh, I want to take another phone call. Uh, we're talking about uh, recovery, relapse, uh, treatments for substance use disorder. In Edina, Anne is on the phone. Good morning, Anne. Thank you for waiting. Thank you for calling in. What did you want to ask or share with us? Well, um, as I was sitting here listening, I kind of answered my own question, but I just wanted to say that I've been a ICU nurse for about 30 years, and I myself have never been um, addicted to drugs, but in my career, I've seen three nurses go down that path, and um, all of them, I was surprised and shocked to hear it, and I noticed in the three cases, like the first case that I used to work at the University of Wisconsin in Madison in the ICU and one of the male nurses um, was discovered to be using narcotics at work. And um, he wasn't fired. He was put into treatment and he was relocated to a department that would give him no exposure to narcotics. Mm-hmm. And um, in the other two cases, it was two female nurses who at work were taken down to the emergency room, uh, blood tested, p- tested positive to narcotics, and both were fired. And I was just curious um, what, like, if, I don't know the no- laws in Minnesota, but I was kind of wondering how that all played through in some of your stories. And um and also, one of the nurses was outed by a fellow nurse, and she was almost villa- villainized for having outed this other nurse for mm-hmm. using narcotics. And I'm just wondering what advice they would give to a nurse who might suspect that's happening. I know, I don't think, like, legally, I think if you suspect that, you'd probably need to report it because you can't have someone uh, altered providing care right. for quickly of patients. So That's, those are my questions and comments. Yeah, a complicated um, scenario. And, and then I just want to ask you, you know, what did you do? You, you said you, in your career, you witnessed three colleagues who were, um, you know, were using something. Um, did you choose to, to just keep it to yourself? Or what were you even seeing? What, how did you know that, that they were, they were on in something? In all three, on all, well, especially one case, you know, I kept... I would go to the bathroom and I would see little droplets of blood in the bathroom and I I didn't it didn't I didn't put two and two together to tell you the truth. Only afterwards, like hindsight was twenty twenty, then I was like, Oh, okay, now I see, now I get it. I know they were getting a shot? What would the droplets of of blood indicate? I mean, that's what I think it was, is that they were shooting up because they were because then, you know, the state will publish what exactly happened and it was all like IV drugs that this person mm. was um, diverting. But you notice behavioral changes as well? No, you know what? I can't say. I re- oh. Only in hindsight, really, okay. you know? All right, well, uh, Anne, all in hindsight. Anne, thank you. Um, Anne, uh, a nurse of uh, a lot of experience who's, who've seen uh, other nurses use. And so her, her first question is, uh, if you suspect a colleague um, has, has, is, is, is struggling with a substance use uh, disorder. What do you do or say, not to make it worse, but to address it, right? Uh, particularly in a, in a hospital setting. What 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 would you say to Anne? So more often than not, um, we we may see behaviors versus um, outright knowledge that there's use, unless you, you're aware outside of of work that that they're drinking or using. Um, and so it really is reporting what you see. You know, I see Susie's been late. 
multiple times. She's not coming in for a shift. She's not, her behaviors aren't the same. I've noticed a change over the last month. Report that to the manager. Let them take that and and determine what's actually going on um, because they can investigate it um, and, and figure out and get somebody help. Ultimately, we really just want no one to die of the disease. We don't want a, a, pa- a patient to be injured. We don't want a nurse to die of the disease of addiction. Because it's dangerous. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Peyton, um, what advice would you give Anne, or if someone is working in a setting, in any industry, and you suspect, but particularly in a hospital setting, what do you say or do? I think Carrie's perfectly, you know, right on that. I mean, you you need to report it. Um, because if you don't, if you keep that to yourself, um, you know, there all, you know, there's this, the, you know, this arm of public health, you know, that's a patient in danger, but then that's also, you know, um, that's a nurse's life, you know, because, Mm-hmm. Um, tons of people, tons of nurses commit suicide around the time that they're, you know, either caught, um, you know, diverting or using or, ha- you know, having a substance use disorder. So there's this, um, there's so much that can be done by just, you know, giving that information that you're seeing and, you know, recording it, reporting it, and then giving it to your, you know, just reporting it to your manager because they're the ones that have all that training and they have the resources to really get. Well, but Anne described too that it, that was a situation where, um, you know, there was an expectation, like, you don't tell, you don't tell on your colleague. Is that a real thing that there's that there's some hesitation because you're supposed to have each other's back? I think there's a built-in trust um, that, that nurses um, build with each other. And, it, you know, if we're not sure, we don't want to raise the concern and be mm-hmm. wrong. Right. So more if we report behaviors um, or actions, um, nurses have a, a practice act um, that they basically agree to with the board and your license. And it says that you uh, basically are going to do things that um, protect the public and the patients, and it ultimately protects the nurses as well. And uh, Peyton, in our final uh, 30 seconds here, uh, what would you just tell, tell people about just the importance of finding your voice and being willing to have a conversation with someone about what you feel um, is, is, is changing your life in a very negative way? Um, you know, I think that if you uh, seek out people that uh, have been have this shared experience as you um, and you can give voice to some of you know, the deepest trauma and, you know, the hardest things that, that you know, as humans there are to talk about. Um, it gives all that such so much less power over you. It mm-hmm. did for me. Um, and it's it creates this um, transformation. It works. It's the beginning of. of- of, of a solution, mm-hmm. right? All right, our time is up for today. Uh, thank you again to our guests here in studio. You drove through the snow. So appreciate you being here and all that you were able to share with our listeners. We've been talking with Carrie uh, Kappel, the co-chair of the Board of Minnesota Nursing Peer Support Network. Carrie's also the manager of operations and addiction services at Alina Health. And Peyton Pollard uh, came to us right from work, a local ICU nurse and a convener for Minnesota Nursing Peer Support Network. Today's conversation was produced by Samantha Matz. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.